I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyes open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. All right, thanks. Yeah, if you want to open your Bible to Psalm 77, I will be kind of referencing it throughout, um, and it might be easier for you to see where we're at in the passage. Um, so uh, the, the theologian who's considered the greatest theologian of the Holy Spirit, a guy named John Calvin, a reformer, once wrote this. What various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury of the Psalms? Uh, It's difficult to describe. He says, I've been wont to call this book, the Psalms, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that's not here represented as in a mirror. Okay? Uh, Just as we stand in front of a mirror, Calvin is saying, in the morning and we see our own face for what it truly is, there's beauty there and there's also a zit there and there's also wrinkles there, right? We see ourselves truly for who we are when we stand in front of a mirror. The Psalms do the same thing. They they diagnose us, they expose us, they um, show us who we are, but the Psalms also do what a mirror can never do. Where a mirror can only reflect back what it sees, the Psalms actually point the way forward to something new, renewal, regeneration, redemption. And this morning when we open to this Psalm, Psalm 77, and we look into this particular mirror of our soul, this prayer, we see one of the universally true human experiences and emotions. What we see here is doubt, all right? I grew up in the home of a surgeon, and speaking as an insider, surgeons tend to be confident, should we say? And uh, one of my favorite lines, my my dad's favorite lines was, son, surgeons are sometimes right and sometimes wrong, but never in doubt, right? Okay, good one, dad. But if we're honest, whether we're surgeons or not, that just isn't true, is it? Um, No one is always sure. Everyone carries doubts about God and faith 
and life and meaning. And especially in the secular world that we live on, I'm becoming more and more convinced that all of us live on the spectrum from faith to doubt. I mean, if you're a believer, you're tempted to doubt. But what's cool about it is if you're an unbeliever, you're also tempted towards belief, right? Because there's enough evidence, there's enough longing in our hearts that, that tempt us towards belief, but those of us who believe are, are, are tempted towards doubt and towards unfaith. We're all somewhere on this spectrum. What are your doubts? What are your questions about God? What about his word, his character, the way that he's worked in your life doesn't make sense? And, and what are we supposed to do with these? What do we do with our doubts according to the Bible? This psalm divides almost exactly in half. Verses 1 through 9 show the author's descent into doubt, and then verses 10 through 20 show his way out. And so in our time this morning, what I want to do is make two observations about the way into doubt, and then two observations about the way out, according to this psalm. So, according to the Bible, why do we doubt? This, notice this first, um, that doubt happens to everyone. The title of the psalm, Sorry about that. The title of the psalm, uh, the author tells us that, or I'm sorry, the title of this psalm tells us that the author is a guy named Asaph. Now, this little nugget actually tells us a lot about this psalm. Asaph, we learn in other places, was an ordained minister in Israel. He was a Levitical priest. He was like the nation's top worship pastor, okay? So it was his job to invoke and to thank and to praise the Lord, and he did this as a leader for worship in the temple for all of God's people. And he has 12 psalms that are his recorded in the psalms, Psalm 50 and then 73 through 83. And I've grown over the years to really love Asaph, all right? Kind of a minor biblical character, but I like this guy, and here's why. I, he just, he's honest. He just tells it like it is, all right? No spiritualizing, no religiosity, no holier-than-thou language. He's an author of Holy Scripture, and he wrote songs that guided the people of God into worship for millennium. Uh, and yet he was honest enough to voice and write real doubts from his heart about God. I mean, look again at those five questions at the center of this psalm starting in verse 7, if you have your Bible open. This is a laundry list of Asaph's doubts. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever cease? Are his promises at an end for all time? Can can you write that in the Bible? Um, Has God forgotten to be gracious? And has he in anger shut up his compassion? You can almost hear him like yelling these things at God. Can you imagine writing this as a song for public worship, for other people to sing so that they can get to know God better? I mean, what if Hillsong's next big hit started off with the lines, how does God allow evil, right? How can hell exist? How can we even trust the Bible? Wasn't it written by a bunch of humans? Sounds like a hit to me, right? This is exactly what Asaph is doing as he writes Holy Scripture for all of God's people for all time. And this is why I love him. He's got real doubts. He has real questions. And he's really honest about it as he approaches God. If Asaph can doubt, so can you and I. In fact, I'll probably go further than that and say you you should. You should have some doubts. 
Okay, if you're an honest, thinking, awake person in our modern world trying to believe in God, you should have some doubts about him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an old Welsh pastor. He wrote this, the fact that you're unhappy or troubled or have doubts, it's no indication you're not a Christian. Indeed, I'd go further to say that if you've never had any trouble in your Christian life, I should very much doubt whether you're a Christian at all. The whole of the New Testament and the history of the church throughout the centuries bear eloquent testimony to the fact that this is a fight of faith and not to have any troubles on this journey in your soul is far from being a good sign. Tim Keller, a more modern pastor, put it like this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. Okay, we, we need this to be healthy. We need to be able to encounter and interact with the, the questions that faith should ask. What both these pastors are saying is that Christianity, it's not a brainwashing religion. It's not a, something that tells us to just think less, turn our brains off, and just have more faith. It's a religion of truth. It asks hard questions because it believes there are real answers. And Asaph shows us that we shouldn't be afraid of voicing those questions as they come up um, that are troubling us. Doubts are human, they're honest, and they can even lead to an increased amount of faith. But the Bible doesn't go so far as to say that they're good. So here's the tension. Because the second observation from this psalm about why we doubt is that doubt is not just merely intellectual curiosity. It's not just the questions that come up as we try to believe. It's actually also spiritual unbelief. Doubt is also a sin. And I think most of us assume, I, I, I did for a long time, that doubt is basically a cerebral problem that needs cerebral answers, all right? Um, that there's important intellectual questions out there about Christianity, um, but that's not what the Bible teaches, is at the heart of doubt. I mean, if you look at the structure of this psalm, the questions of doubt that we've already highlighted, they come right in the middle, verses 7 through 9, but the psalm doesn't start there. Where does the psalm start? It starts with Asaph in trouble. Look at verse 2 and 4. He says, I'm in trouble. We don't know what his trouble was. He doesn't tell us. We, he doesn't tell us what, what, what's going on in his outward circumstances. He only tells us what's going on in his inside turmoil. Okay? And notice the high density of what we'd call like, what first-person pronouns in verses 1 through 7. So the whole first half of the psalm is pretty much all about Asaph. My trouble, I seek, my hand, my soul, I remember, I moan, I meditate, my spirit, I'm troubled, I cannot speak. He's overwhelmed by his circumstances, and his world has shrunk to the size of his own trouble and his own experience. He's living in a world that's about as big as all he can see, okay, all he can feel and experience. Now, we often hear, I think, in our wider culture that faith and reason are on opposite sides of the table. It's faith versus reason. Um, and uh, the implication of this is that our doubts come because reason has finally like, put enough pressure on faith to expose some cracks. This is not the picture from the Bible. The Bible doesn't say the opposite of faith is reason. You know what Paul says the opposite of faith is? Sight. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, that's exactly what this psalmist is experiencing. He, all he can see is his own trouble. 
and it's causing him to doubt what he already knew was true. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a problem of vision. All right, so I used to do a fair bit of rock climbing. I haven't been on a wall in a long time, but my brother and I used to do this. And um, when we lived in the same town, and we knew enough not to get ourselves killed, okay? So we knew the knots that we needed to tie. We could do the figure eight. We could triple check the you know, harness and all this kind of stuff. And so um, we would go do this probably once a week. Um, and uh, we had a very reasonable amount of faith in our gear. We knew that rope could hold a school bus. We knew if we tri triple checked the belays and the knots that there was no way we could fall off that rock. But all of that faith and that reasonable faith we have, it changes when you're 50 feet off the deck, doesn't it? And you're about to launch off the rock and throw a dyno for the top and try to stick it, but you only stick it about half the time. So it means the other half the time, you, uh, you really are putting your life in the hands of all the stuff that you have a very reasonable amount of faith in. So right before I leap off that rock, I have my doubts, okay? I have my doubts, and I always did. I always got the same feeling in my tummy. But what changed? There's no new information here, right? All the same equipment is attached to me. It's, my, it's the same brothers down there who generally I, in life I trust. Um, there's no new logical argument or reason that I shouldn't try to climb to the top of this route. I doubt because I'm afraid. I doubt because my whole reality has shrunk to the size of what I can see. My sweaty hands, you know, the rock right in front of me, um, how, far, how small my brother looks down below. The audio is playing, the rope is safe, you've done this a hundred times, and it's triple checked. This is a very reasonable faith. But the video is playing, no, 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 don't jump, right? The audio is saying one thing, the video, what we can see is saying something else. Doubt comes when what our mind knows is true becomes untrue to our heart because of our circumstances, okay? Doubt comes when what our mind knows is true becomes untrue to our heart because of our circumstances. Asaph's cries of faith came not when a new logical argument was presented to him. He didn't meet Christopher Hitchens or whoever, and it's like, oh, that's a good point. No, he had trouble, and then it led to doubt. His heart wasn't sure anymore. So doubt really, at the end of the day, is putting our own subjective experience in place of authority over God's word and his truth. We allow our intuitions, our experience, our trouble to be the loudest voice in our life, it gets the final say. And God's word, if it happens to align with our view, we're, we're in. But if it doesn't, we doubt what God's word says is true to us. We doubt his faithfulness, his wisdom, his goodness. We, uh, far before we doubt our own small view of things, we doubt God's word. And that, it's a heart of unbelief, okay? So on the one hand, doubt, is a very natural, very human experience, and it's a good opportunity to be honest before God. It's even a good opportunity to increase our faith. Every life of faith should have some of those antibodies in it. We should ask hard questions. On the other hand, at the root of doubt, it's not just curiosity. It's not just some intellectual question. It's actually a heart that doesn't want to believe in God's good word. 
And what's interesting is I think we tend to sort of absolutize one of the two of these things. So uh, the religious approach to doubt is, is to stuff them, okay? To say, no, 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 that's not me. Um, doubts are a sign of weakness, and I am a strong Christian. I don't have doubts. Christians shouldn't have doubts, and we stuff them. That's the religious response to these doubts. The, the secular response is almost exactly the opposite. The secular approach is to vent them, to air them, to let them in some ways become our identity. See, the secular story is that your skepticism, your critical thinking skills, your hesitancy to put your chips all in, all down on one belief system is actually wise. It's the more grown-up the more modern view of things. Uh, so, you know, we never really know anyway. How can you be sure about it? And so this is meant to sound enlightening, but this is really condemning us to uncertainty and fear. And uh, here's the good news of the psalm, is we're not stuck in this, like, binary decision. We don't have to stuff our doubts and deny them, nor do we have to, like, try to build our house on them by being modern and enlightened. The psalm offers a third way. It offers a way through doubt, not to stuff them, not to embrace them, but to wrestle with our doubts in the presence of God and let him draw us nearer to himself as we do this. So how does the psalm usher us out of doubt into belief and hope? Two steps. First, pray your doubts. All right, the very first line of this psalm, verse 1, I cry aloud to God. The Bible is not embarrassed by your questions. It actually tells us to say them out loud to God, to openly, honestly have a conversation with him. Uh, You guys know I love C.S. Lewis. He married late in life to a woman named Joy, and then Joy got cancer and ended up dying before Lewis himself did. And as she went through her battle with cancer and then as she died, he journaled sort of his spiritual, emotional journal through her death. And after the fact, he went back and published it as a short little book called A Grief Observed. Okay? And there is, uh, there's a section in there where he spends a few pages uh, contemplating whether or not God is wicked. All right, This is like... Um, the patron saint of American evangelicalism, C.S. Lewis, is contemplating whether or not God is wicked. And he says this, time after time, when he seemed most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. Okay? Paragraph ends. You turn the page. The next line in his journal is, I wrote that last night. It was a yell rather than a thought. Let me start again. Okay? Um, the first half of Psalm 77 is like Lewis's yell. He's venting to God. He's wrestling with the hard, dark, difficult times that he is in, his trouble. And it's exactly how a believer should doubt. We should doubt in conversation with God, praying these things to him, even yelling them if we need to, in prayer. In Hebrews 5, we learn Jesus himself cried aloud to God. He yelled at God too. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. Okay, this is not wrong. This is how Jesus prayed. If you have doubts, whether they're small or whether they're potentially devastating to your faith, um, bring them to God in prayer. You might even doubt whether he exists. That's no reason not to talk to him. 
okay? You might doubt whether God is real. That's no reason not to start a conversation with him and bring your doubts to him. But remember, this psalm was also written for public worship as well as private prayer. And so let's not just voice them to God. Let's voice them to each other, right? Let's voice them in Christian community. Let's develop the sorts of relationships and groups and friendships where this sort of conversation is the norm. Here's how it's hard for me to believe in God right now. Here's how I'm tempted towards unbelief right now. Help me believe again. God has given us avenues where there are real answers to our deepest questions. His word, prayer, and Christian community. Let's like put ourselves in the way of where the real answers are. Okay, let's not remove ourselves from the possibility of finding answers. Let's get in the way. Asaph says, voice your doubts, pray them to God, share them with others in safe and honest relationships, and put yourself in the way of his answers and his grace. And the last way out of doubt is this. You've got to nestle your doubts. Nestle? Yes. You have to nestle them. Here lays the true secret, the antidote uh, to doubt in this psalm. If we um, have diagnosed our doubts correctly, all right, and we realize that we got into doubt through forgetting the larger reality behind our immediate experience, if we got in by forgetting, then we have to get out of doubt by remembering. Okay, verse 3, we are remembering God, uh, and he brings despair. But by verse 10 and 11, remembering God brings hope and confidence. What changed between verses 3 and verse 10? Here's what changed. Verse 5, he says, I consider the days of old, and he means my own days. I'm old, the span of my own life. And that's the framework in which he's thinking. But by verse 10, he says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So he pushes the timeline further back to include more of what he knows about God. He remembers the larger story he was in, not just his life, but the bigger picture of all that God has done working in the world. And this begins to heal his doubt. Now, this isn't radical, okay? This isn't like, this is the first time anybody's heard this. We do this all the time. When I'm about to launch off that cliff rock climbing, what do I do to get myself out of doubt and back into a good place? I remember more right? I, I have to expand from my sweaty hands and the, you know, how high I am off the ground. I have to go back and say, wait, we did triple check it. This rope holds me. My brother knows how to catch me when I fall. I have to expand the story I'm in, and then it brings faith again. I have to remember the bigger story. Asaph does the same thing. In the second half of the psalm, he remembers the facts about God, and his own subjective experience nestles into a wider, bigger story. Here's what he remembers. Verse 13, he remembers God is holy, that God is perfectly good in all he does, that he's strong and good. And at verse 14, he remembers God is the good creator of all things, that not only did he create the world, but he created Asaph, and he creates everybody that Asaph loves, and God loves them more than he loves them. In fact, God loves us more than we love ourselves. He created us. And then in verses 16 through 19, he remembers that God redeems his people. In these verses, the psalmist remembers the greatest act of salvation in Israel's history when God led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea in Exodus, and Moses led them into salvation. Um, The sea, 
throughout the Bible, it's always a symbol of chaos, destruction, and evil. You've got to get through the sea to escape death. The sea symbolizes our greatest problem. But we read in verse 19, your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters. Now, this, of course, is true of the salvation um, of, it, of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Um, they had to go through the Red Sea, but it's even more true of the salvation that we all have in Jesus. You see, Jesus himself entered the greatest sea this world has ever known, the greatest chaos, the greatest death and destruction when he died on the cross in our place. And we don't often think of it this way, but Jesus experienced greater doubt than anyone else in history. He knows what it's like to doubt. He was perfectly faithful to his father, but his father left him on that cross alone. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? I mean, that's a moment of like the deepest doubt any human has ever experienced. The loneliness of bearing our doubt and our unbelief so that when he came through the sea out the other side, we could have assurance and, and faith that we are always good with God. The answer, interestingly, to Asaph's doubts they're never directly answered in this psalm. God doesn't come back and say, here's how I'm going to be gracious forever. Here's how I'm going to stick with my people forever. Not all of our questions will be specifically answered. But when we nestle our questions within the fact that the greatest doubt of human existence has already been answered by Jesus in his death and resurrection, we can still have hope. We can still have faith. We can, we can doubt like Christians, okay? And we can doubt in belief. No other faith offers that kind of assurance, a pillar of such certainty and truth that you can grasp it in all of life's chaotic circumstances. You are safe in Christ. You are safe because he's removed the greatest doubt, the greatest threat to our life, and he has placed us on a rock of assurance that no matter what happens to us, we are safe in him forever. Now, on that sort of foundation, all kinds of questions can come our way, all kinds of trouble, all kinds of difficulty, but we can be certain that because of Jesus' ushering us through our great doubt and planting us in his family through adoption, we can always be safe in him. He shepherded Asaph through his doubt, and God offers to shepherd us the same way. So don't be afraid of him, all right? Ask the question. Voice the doubt. Yell it at God if you have to. Yell it at me. Yell it at one another. This is one of the avenues that God gave us to actually grow our faith, is the questions that we have about him. So we don't have to be afraid of him, because Jesus can hold us even in the midst of our questions and our doubts. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you um, for the certainty and the assurance that you offer in your gospel. Thank you that it's not our salvation and your love for us is not a, um, a result of us having all the answers. It's certainly not a result of us understanding everything that you've ever said to us in the Bible. It has nothing to do with us at all. And it has everything to do with the fact that you've chosen to love us and adopt us into your family. And you have secured us through your death and resurrection. And, and that just gives great hope. And that gives great faith. And that gives great confidence that we're always safe in you. 
So help us bring our questions and our doubts and our fears to you, knowing they're ultimately safe in your hands. We ask these things in your name. Amen.